Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, broadcasting from Rhodes, Greece, on the south of the island here. We just went to Lindos yesterday, saw the Acropolis there, and there is nothing when you look south. There is nothing until you hit Egypt. When you look a little bit to the left, you will see nothing and... If you keep going far enough, there's just nothing until you hit Israel. So it really is, you know, the edge of Europe here. I mean, on the other side of the island where we were last week, that is only, you know, 24 kilometers from Turkey. You can see Turkey from the coast there. So super fascinating out here. So back to the bond market, we are seeing tremors here. And let me count the ways. And I think what's so interesting about it is the diversity of the problems. Tell me what you think. So first of all, the what we might say, the granddaddy of them all here, the U.S. 10-year is at 4.22%. So quite elevated above 4%. Looks like it's going to take another stab at 4.3. One would say a little bit disconcerting. And the U.K. 10-year was up at 4.62%. So I don't want to say they've spiked back up because maybe that's overstating, but they are back near recent highs. If you remember, at the beginning of July, we saw 4.65% on the UK 10-year bond, or the gilt as they call them. So we're seeing the US and the UK 10-year kind of spike up a bit. Weirdly enough, they feel like global tremors because then if we look at Russia, Russian central banks jack up interest rates to 12% at emergency meetings. The ruble has been falling, so maybe for completely different reasons. We don't know, but at the end of the day, Russia is raising interest rates for its bonds. Then, as I was looking at this data, you know, right as I was starting this podcast, breaking news on CNBC, Fitch warns it may be forced to downgrade dozens of banks, including J.P. Morgan Chase. So you put it all together, and I'm not enough of an expert on Japan to even talk about what's going on over there. But they also seem to be having bond issues. So what I find fascinating about this is this isn't just like what you might call a Western problem. This isn't even just a sovereign problem. There are just tremors in the bond market. And maybe it's accidental that these are all occurring at the same time. Hard to say, but I just think it's quite noteworthy that we're getting this interesting, and this is, I'm sure, oversimplified, but an interesting lack of confidence in bonds. So interesting just fluctuations there to note. Now, picking up on last week's thread on Niger, there have been a couple of developments that I think are worth mentioning, particularly in the context of our conversation on the motivations behind this coup, because now we are seeing that the military, that the junta in Niger is now going to put Mohammed Bazoum on trial for high treason. And I think this is the first sign that we have that this isn't simply for benign reasons and to release Niger from its colonial masters. Perhaps, I mean, but when I saw that, I thought, well, that seems a little extreme, right? Because we all know high treason, that's probably going to lead to execution. And who's doing this trial? So it seems like a little bit of an excuse to kill off any opposition. So 
again, that kind of feeds into this idea that what occurred in Niger is arguably a power grab using France as the fig leaf. So just kind of interesting there. And finally, just one more thread that I thought was quite interesting here on the Niger coup. This is from BBC. Russia warns ECOWAS not to take military action. And I was seeing a video, and I'm not sure if it was from that meeting that Russia had with African leaders like a week or two ago or more recent. But there's a video of Vladimir Putin basically sounding like a traveling salesman talking about all the military technology that he's willing to sell to Africa and to people who, you know, in their minds want to free themselves from the Western domination. And that will happily for, you know, as they put it, for nations that want to fulfill their own manifest destiny, you know, Russia is more than happy to sell you all the weapons you want. I've never seen anything quite like that. We have the latest technology, we have AI, and I mean, it's something to go and find. I mean, I've just never seen Putin in salesman mode like that, quite literally, selling weapons. First come, first serve. So that was also interesting. Other than that, we are seeing a return of a strong dollar in the last few weeks, which does seem to be affecting metals markets. We've seen Dr. Copper at $3.66 and gold down here at $1,934.90, silver at $22.54. So a strong dollar seems to be pushing down the metals here. So interesting situation there. And just turning to the oil markets, we're still at $82 West Texas Intermediate and Brent crude at $85.87. So almost $86 on Brent crude with a strong dollar, I might add. So oil continues to have strength, although there is a sense that it may be topping out in the near term. Now, speaking of energy and our feature content here, we have a wonderful interview with Zalanda's CEO, Gene Morgan. And what I liked about the interview is it really helped illuminate, for me, much of what's going on in terms of how lithium is extracted. It is its own beast. As we see from those salt flats, it is not the same kind of, you know, quote-unquote mining that we would do for gold, silver, or copper. So I took the opportunity to ask lithium brine technology provider Zelandes, CEO, how lithium is extracted and also how he sees the market, as well as why he thinks the oil companies are going into lithium. And it's quite interesting because what we learn in the interview is Gene actually comes out of the oil and gas industry. And because of its similarities in extraction, he started working in lithium. So he said there's a lot of overlap between oil and gas and lithium, which is news to me. I mean, other than these stories that we're seeing with Exxon and Chevron showing interest. So a really interesting interview there. And also coming up on October 12th and 13th, we have the Canadian Mining Symposium in London, England. And it is going to be a major event with Robert Friedland from Ivanhoe Mines, Catherine McLeod-Seltzer, from Kinross Gold, David Garofalo, Frank Justra, Don Lindsay, Johnny McCluskey, Sean Rosen, and Randy Smallwood, as well as several investor presentations. This should be a wonderful event. Just go to events.northernminer.com to get a ticket or to show your interest in sponsorship. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. 
Find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. Turning to the website, Bolivia Eyes Lithium Mining Investments from Brazil's Petrobras. This is Reuters via Mining.com. Brazil's state-run oil giant Petrobras has signaled interest in possibly investing in Bolivia's lithium-rich salt flats with an eye towards industrial-scale projects, the country's top energy official said on Tuesday. Energy Minister Franklin Molina spoke in an interview with state-owned Bolivia TV on the same day that Bolivian President Luis Arque met with the Petrobras chief executive on the sidelines of an Amazon rainforest summit in Belém, Brazil. Quote, they also showed an interest in visiting Bolivian salt flats and were motivated by our industrialization projects, said Molina. Petrobras is showing an interest in this country that's migrating toward electric vehicles and the production of batteries. And quote, he added, emphasizing that Bolivia's government is keen to advance on lithium. Later on Tuesday, Petrobras confirmed the meeting between Arque and Petrobras CEO John Paul Prates in a statement. It described the meeting as focused on evaluating, quote, potential alliances and joint projects, end quote, in oil and gas, fertilizers, as well as energy transition projects, which is sometimes used to describe those involving key battery metals like lithium. And we have another quote from Molina, who is the energy minister. They're not just talking about the continuity in exports of gas to Brazil, but also in developing future investments in new exploration projects to increase production. So. As we were saying in the intro, and as you'll see in our future content, oil companies continue to show interest in lithium. And in our future content, we get some of the reasons why these oil companies are entering the lithium market. So so another interesting development here. Continuing on, Australia's Azure Minerals rejects $585 million takeover bid from SQM. This is Reuters via Mining.com, so more activity in the lithium sector. Australia's Azure Minerals said on Tuesday it rejected a buyout bid from Sociedad Quimica y Minera de Chile, SQM, valuing the lithium developer at $584 million US, sending its shares more than 12% higher. Azure, which owns around a 60% stake in the highly prospective Andover lithium project in Western Australia's Pilbara region, said it decided to reject the offer in light of the increasing potential of the project. Shares of the Australian company jumped as much as 12.4%. Chile's SQM, which is partnering with Australian firm West Farmers to build the $1.9 billion Mount Holland lithium hydroxide project in Western Australia, acquired a 20% stake in Azure for $20 million Australian in March. SQM, whose biggest shareholder is China's Tangchi Lithium Corp, did not immediately respond to a Reuters request for comment. So isn't that interesting? So SQM's biggest shareholder is China's Tangchi Lithium. So that is kind of interesting. So really, this was partly a Chinese play for Australia's Azure Minerals, interestingly. Continuing on, U.S. Steel soars after it rejects $7.25 billion Cliffs bid. So Cleveland Cliffs was trying to take over U.S. Steel. This is Bloomberg News via Mining.com. United States Steel surged after it rejected a takeover offer from rival Cleveland Cliffs to create one of the world's biggest steelmakers and said it will begin a review of its strategic options instead. 
U.S. Steel, an icon of American industry with roots stretching back more than a century, on Sunday announced a formal process to assess its alternatives after receiving approaches for parts or all of its business. About three hours later, Cliffs went public with its cash and share bid, which values the company at about $7.25 billion based on closing prices on Friday, a 43% premium. U.S. Steel surged more than 29% Monday in New York. Cliffs jumped as much as 6.7%, so it's interesting to see both companies go up. Cliffs said it submitted the proposal privately on July 28th and received a rejection letter on Sunday that called the offer quote-unquote unreasonable. The bid has the backing of the powerful United Steelworkers Union, it said. U.S. Steel later confirmed the response but defended its decision, saying that Cliffs had refused to sign a non-disclosure agreement unless the Pittsburgh-based producer agreed to the economic terms of the proposal in advance. So interesting development there in steel. So more M&A. And continuing on, Barrick CEO sees few good deals despite mining's M&A revival. So this is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Barrick Gold won't be pressured into making any major acquisitions, even as its rivals pursue a flurry of deal-making in the mining industry. Chief Executive Officer Mark Brissot said, quote, the market is constantly dragging us into the M&A conversation and we don't need that, Bristow said Tuesday in an interview at Bloomberg's Toronto office. Quote, we're not anti-M&A. It's a component of any industry rearrangement. But the problem is that in the gold industry, most of the tier one assets remaining are embedded in bad assets. And you can't unlock them. I had to read this a few times. And I still find it enigmatic what he's trying to say. Most of the tier one assets remaining are embedded in bad assets. Does he mean like countries that are not secure? You know, so so an interesting, ambiguous comment from Mark Brissot. Another story here, Newcrest profit falls nearly 11% on higher operating costs. This is Reuters via mining.com. And this is interesting in light of the recent Newmont takeover proposal. Australia's Newcrest Mining, which has received a $26 billion Australian takeover offer from Newmont, posted a near 11% fall in annual profit on Friday, hurt by lower realized prices for copper and a rise in operating and finance costs. So this is something we're seeing kind of over and over, actually, is the rise in costs of mining. And a lot of these numbers are based on, you know, before oil shot up 20%. The country's largest listed miner said its underlying profit was $778 million for the year ended June 30th, compared with $872 million a year earlier. Finally, Newcrest expects its 2024 gold production to be in the range of 2 million to 2.3 million ounces. The lower end of the guidance is below the 2023 fiscal year's production of 2.1 million ounces. And finally on this, Newcrest's all-in sustaining cost, a key industry metric that reflects total expenses associated with production, was $1,093 per ounce for the 2023 fiscal year, compared with $1,043 per ounce a year earlier. So costs rise $50 per ounce. Interesting. So another interesting article here, China's gold prices rising higher than the rest of the world due to import curbs. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. China's gold prices rising against levels in London, a trend that local traders say is due to government curbs on imports of the precious metal. The Shanghai spot price was more than $40 an ounce higher 
than that in London on August 14th, according to Bloomberg calculations based on exchange data. That's the biggest premium in more than five months, with the gap steadily widening from late June, even as consumer demand in China remains sluggish. Authorities moving to limit gold imports appear to be a major driver behind the growing gap, according to traders and importers. Now, one wonders why the authorities would be trying to limit gold imports. The government has reduced or stopped issuing import quotas to some local banks, according to people familiar with the matter, who ask not to be identified as the information is private. I mean, I don't mind anonymous sources, but the more secretive the source, I would argue, the less credible the uh, answer. Unless you have a long history of using anonymous sources credibly, some secret person who's asking to keep everything private is giving the explanation that the government has reduced or stopped issuing import quotas to some local banks. That's resulted in a drop in flows over the last few months, two of the people said, and there's no immediate prospect of the affected quotas being issued again. The reasons for the curbs isn't clear. So fascinating. And just a few headlines here. Russian aluminum in LME-registered warehouses rises to 81% in July. So there is quite a bit of aluminum on the LME, but 81% of it is Russian, interestingly. Like, one wonders what would have happened if they had banned Russian aluminum last month. Because 81% of the supply was Russian, so pretty interesting. And a couple of more headlines. China's Nanfang to open major copper smelter ahead of expectations. And one more just on this Argentine election. Interestingly, he is a Bitcoiner. I think this is a much bigger deal than people are saying. The way this Argentine first round of an election is being framed is that the candidate, whose name is Javier Gerardo Malay, is a hardcore libertarian. But one of the things that is not getting mentioned enough is he is pro-Bitcoin. And I tell you, in places like Argentina, they are used to using cryptocurrencies over there out of necessity. You see it in the digital art space. You have a huge amount of Argentine artists in the digital art space because they are used to using crypto. It's quite fascinating, actually. So when I see this you know, story of this free marketeer leading Argentine election seen, rock, seen rocking commodities, this to me is very much a populist story of hostility towards central banks, plus a positive view on Bitcoin, and love it or hate it, this is how a lot of people are feeling. It is a populist sentiment. So quite interesting over there. And just a couple more headlines here. Ford shuts down in Brazil and China's top EV maker comes to the rescue. So this Ford plant that was built in 2001 looks like it's going to be sold off to China's BYD, which I believe stands for Build Your Dreams which is China's largest electric vehicle maker. And speaking of headlines, I just saw another headline. It sounds like China has surpassed Japan as the largest exporter of automobiles, which is quite something. And one more headline, Cadelco turns to new CEO as debt piles up at the top copper producer. Cadelco will name its third CEO in a year in the coming weeks as Chile's state-owned copper company struggles to turn around a slump in output and earnings. And we've been following this for a few months now. How Cadelco has been struggling with output and production. With debt at $19 billion and rising, the stakes are getting higher for bondholders. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. 
And turning to metal prices, gold is trading at $1,938 even per ounce. That is $1.40 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $22.72 per ounce. That is $0.68 cents lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $900.83 per ounce. That is $22 lower than last week, and palladium is trading at $1,263.48 per ounce. That is $26 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is at $3.73 per pound. That is $0.09 lower than last week. Iron ore is at $104.63 per metric ton. That is $0.10 lower than last week. Aluminum is $0.04 lower at $0.97 per pound. Lead is a penny lower at $0.95 cents per pound, and nickel is $0.50 cents lower at $9.05 per pound. Tin is also lower at $12 even per pound, that is $0.57 cents lower than last week. Cobalt is even at $15.16 per pound. Lithium is at $35.06 per kilogram, that is $1.73 lower than last week. Uranium edges higher at $56.75 per pound. That is 50 cents higher than last week. And zinc is lower at $1.07 per pound. That is 6 cents lower than last week. Zooming out, it appears to me the strong dollar is continuing to hurt metal prices, with the big exception being uranium. Uranium, the standout, and everything else basically taking a breather and kind of getting chipped away at by a strong dollar. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, we're very pleased to have Gene Morgan, CEO of Zalendas, a lithium brine services provider and technology company to the Northern Miner podcast. Gene sheds light on the lithium industry. It's almost like an ABCs of lithium circa 2023 as far as how is lithium extracted how is it similar to the oil business and why are oil companies all of a sudden interested in lithium and also some of the great challenges facing the lithium industry including permitting times and a lack of talent i hope you enjoy it and i will see you on the other side Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome for the first time to the Northern Miner podcast, Gene Morgan, CEO of Zalandez. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Adrian. So I guess before we begin, could you give us a little bit of background on your company and really the solutions it provides in the lithium space? Sure. So Landers is a lithium brinefield services company. So our purpose really as a company is to accelerate lithium supply. And we do this by providing cutting edge technology. So, you know, everything from uh, well downhole uh, geophysical logging, which is about mapping the underground and the resource itself, resource and feasibility studies. So understanding the size and the breadth of how big a lithium resource is. And also, you know, drone surveys of evaporation ponds, which are the massive pools that you see on on the salt flats in South America, for example, understanding the volume of those, and then also uh, modular production plants. So producing the the final chemical product, uh, lithium carbonate. So our first thought is always, you know, how can we save 
to client time. We see that as our, our number one goal in, in getting to the, you know, to accelerate lithium supply. The, the demand is far outpacing the supply. So, you know, everywhere we are or everywhere lithium is being produced, it has to be produced faster if we're to, you know, help with this energy transition we're going through. But then also, you know, lithium brine, which is kind of the, the niche which we focus on, is is the lowest cost of production. So its main problem really is the speed to production, you know, in the order of seven plus years. So why does it take so long then? A lot of people have heard of lithium, but few people actually understand more of the mechanics of, of what's going on. So, for example, why is it taking seven years to produce lithium? Yeah, so it's got a lot to do with the fact that the end, uh, you know, we, in a, in a sense, we're not talking really about mining. It's it's a combination of mining and speciality chemicals. It's a an industry where you have a mining component for the first, you know, the main portion of the exploration and development, but then you move into into really a speciality chemicals business on on producing lithium chemicals for the industry, for the world. Now, the challenge is really that, I mean, like most resource projects, you have to go through a series of feasibility, analyzing the resource and understanding how you are going to produce it and to what grade you're going to produce. And so there's lots of challenges there around the permitting of that. A lot of the time, you know, lithium is being produced in quite pristine environments. For example, you know, in South America with the salt flats, you're dealing with a a resource that's you know, it's connected to um, freshwater reserves in a way. So you have a potential there to to disrupt the resources of freshwater. Then for people like my girlfriend, who sometimes, uh, you know, she's worried, for example, I mean, you're out in Bolivia right now, and she's worried actually about the mining or the extraction, shall we say, of lithium in Bolivia. Do you have anything to say to people like her who are maybe concerned? And, you know, what sort of steps are being taken out there to kind of alleviate, you know, issues around freshwater or just disturbing the habitat? Do you have anything to say on that? Yeah, now there's there's quite a rigorous, you know, set of procedures or, or processes that each project will go through. You know, not, the regulatory agencies in each of the countries does have a very close eye on on what is happening and and requirements about how you go about developing the resource. And again, that's why these projects often take a long time because you have to prove that you are not affecting the environment or resources that are being, you know, fresh water, for example, that is being used by the local communities and, and wildlife. But there is extensive analysis in terms of, for example, that the water basins or the salar basins, salt flat basins, let's say, in um, South America, you really have a, a dynamic uh, hydraulic balance, really, uh, across the salar. So you've got inflows and outflows, and part of the process of analysing okay, what is my inflow into the basin? What is my outflow? And if I'm producing lithium, brine, then how does that affect that balance? And those sorts of studies are done extensively with lots of data taken from below ground and above ground by you know some of the leading hydrogeology and geochemistry experts around the world. Yeah, so that is helpful. And just for those that might not know, how mm. is lithium extracted then in these like salars just a little bit about the again the mechanics of how this works yeah so it's kind of how i ended up in in lithium to start with really just a bit of background i i grew up in new zealand i studied mechanical engineering and then i set off working in the oil and gas industry for 10 years and really 
when I looked at lithium around 2015, the exploration and development of lithium brine especially has a lot of similarities with how you develop an oil field. You first try and understand the, the below ground in high detail through you know downhole geophysics, acquiring lots of data about the subsurface, and that comes from drilling. So drilling holes uh, into, this, uh, into the salt flat, and essentially what you're doing is drilling through a series or one or two or more aquifers and you know just like groundwater in those aquifers sits a very very salty liquid called brine um, it's more saline uh, more saltier than seawater by an order of magnitude of 10 and in that brine is sitting your your lithium which you then extract or pump to surface and then you send it to either you know an evaporation pond system which are the big pond system which uh, it goes through a series of evaporation steps where different elements of that brine are being precipitated out, dropping out of the out of the solution, or it could go through a what we call a direct lithium extraction process, which is a series of technologies that extract lithium directly from the brine. It's so interesting you mentioned the similarities with extracting oil because recently we've seen Exxon and Chevron actually make noises about how they want to get into lithium. And so maybe this is part of the reason. In a sense, it has to do the extraction is a little bit similar. Uh, did you see those stories? And do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, no, we are we are starting to see oil and gas players come into the space, and they do have a focus on the lithium brine productions in particular because that's where they see that their their wheelhouse is is most similar. And that could either be you know, the oil field brines, which is basically getting lithium from the brine, which is produced within oil field wells you know, all around the world. A lot of oil wells are producing brine at the same time. In that brine can be sitting lithium uh, at a small concentration or the conventional lithium brine scenario where you're extracting uh, lithium brine from below surface uh, in aquifers. Okay, fascinating. So zooming out then, as we kind of think of the larger supply and demand and the U.S. effort with the Inflation Reduction Act to try and onshore lithium supply locally or with, you know, quote unquote, friendly countries, friendshoring as they call it. What is your assessment of the larger supply and demand fundamentals of lithium? Firstly, I mean, we think, you know, the USA should have its own lithium supply. You know, lithium is definitely critical to making this energy transition work. And you would have seen just recently the DOE that last week, I believe, just added lithium to its list of critical materials over the next 10 years. That's huge. You know, it's it's basically saying that this is something uh, that we need to develop local supply as well as supply in, in aligned countries, let's say. And then secondly, you know, the, the Inflation Reduction Act has really turned the attention back to the US as the land of, you know, investment opportunity in the lithium value chain. So we've noticed that a you know, really serious uptick in, in terms of exploration projects in the US, and we're only just at the beginning. But, you know, building the lithium mine supply chain in the US, will it'll go a long way to continuing the legacy of energy independence that essentially was, was started with the, with the shale oil and gas revolution. But it's going to require, you know, a significant amount of, of mining of lithium. Okay, very interesting. And I guess speed is of the essence. And you're saying over at Zelandes, you guys are able to uh, speed up the process. Maybe you already touched on this, but how are you speeding up this process? 
Yeah, so we entered the into the lithium space in twenty. You know, first operation was twenty eighteen on the Salar de Atacama in, in Chile, and really we came in with the mindset that oil field technologies and methodologies could be brought across and adapted to the space. So we set about first offering clients advanced downhole geophysics, which is about mapping the subsurface, mapping the below ground in high detail. And through that, you can really get a better understanding of of your resource, the size and how to produce it as efficiently as possible. And so what was previously, you know, in the early stages of of a lithium exploration project, you really, the key is to get data and fast. And so what we were doing was getting uh, much higher rates of data and much higher detail at, at a much faster rate. Uh, so if we, if I give a comparison, you know, um, to get data from a single well, we could turn, we could get, uh, you know, data back to the client within 24 hours, whereas previous incumbent methods were taking, you know, sometimes months by the time you send a, a physical core, for example, to, to a US laboratory to get analyzed. So that's just one, you know, and then on the production plant side, we're really looking to speed up the time to first production. So getting a client, a modular plant system that just gets them into production as fast as possible to be producing some minimum level of production that they can help uh, to finance themselves, but also to to provide production to the industry. So what do you think the industry, you know, the lithium extraction industry needs to do then going forward? Like, do you feel like you have everything you need? Do you think things are working smoothly? What kind of roadblocks are you seeing towards getting this, you know, huge amount of lithium that the West needs or that the U.S. needs, for example? Are there any big roadblocks that you see? Yeah, I think if if we're talking about uh, the U.S., but I mean, in a broader sense, the the industry itself, you know, the, the two challenges are really permitting and and the general challenge of talent of getting the right talent. So if we look at permitting, for example, you know, sometimes projects in the U.S. can take several years just to get through that lengthy, complex, you know, permitting process. It is enlightening to see some of the positive first steps that are going on in the US in order to to revamp that and provide a faster route to production, but it's an ongoing process. So, you know, permitting reform will be a key part of faster projects in the US and North America. And then the the second is is just the challenge of talent. You know, this, this industry is starting from a very small base or pool of talent that existed previous. And now, you know, we're going through unprecedented growth where we're having to upskill and train people and put them to work faster than, than the industry can supply. And so, you know, thankfully we are seeing some influx from other industries, adjacent industries, which have similar uh, skill sets, for example, oil and gas, but it still requires the industry, lithium industry to, to upskill those people and, and train them on the specifics of lithium because it is a unique niche industry in itself with unique demands. So so I would that's that's what I would say are the two main challenges for us. I could totally imagine that. You know, it's funny, like someone reached out to me who listened to the show in Berlin. She was an engineer and she was looking to get into the mining industry and which I thought was fascinating in order to help the world solve its problems. Do you have any advice for engineers who might be interested? Is do you think there's openings there in terms of ways of going about it or do you think it's something you simply need to go to school I'm just kind of curious since you mentioned talent which is a major problem actually in this industry right now yeah no, I, I talent is needed absolutely and if you have a skill set 
very similar to to what the industry needs, then then there are openings in a lot of places. And I would say just just be proactive and, and reach out to those companies that you would like to work for. I can guarantee that you would get at least get a, a sign of interest from them. Much like our company, we, we're getting CVs all the time from the oil and gas industry. A lot of those we are taking up and running interviews and investigating more. It's just that critical is the need for talent that we're looking everywhere we can. So as we wrap up here, is, do you have any final thoughts or is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think we should mention here that is worth uh, sharing uh, with people who are interested in lithium? I would say just to add, you know, if if you are looking to to come into the industry, uh, the key advantage that you have is that there is information out there, uh, you know, lots of it being produced each day that that can give you an insight insider's view into the industry. It has been historically quite an opaque industry, hard to understand, get your head around, but I think that's changing, and you're starting to see you know courses pop up that can help bring you up to a certain level of, of understanding of the industry if, if you wanted to enter into it. Gene Morgan, CEO of Zelandes, thank you for joining us and sharing your insights on the lithium industry on the Northern Miner podcast. Thank you, Adrian. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to Gene Morgan, CEO of Zalandas. One of my takeaways is it sounds like if you're interested in joining the lithium industry, it sounds like there's a lot of information online that can get you quite a long ways along your way. So very interesting. If you want to join us in person, you can always find us at the Canadian Mining Symposium on October 12th and 13th. Just go to events.northernminer.com. It's got a wonderful lineup. You will not want to miss it. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends, and until next week, take care.